Good morning. Last week, I had the opportunity to preach at a different church. It was called Trinity Bible Church in Virginia. And it was raining. It was raining pretty hard. So hard that by the time I got up to preach, all the lights went out. <laughs> and so I'm, I was thinking to myself, oh, this is awkward. How in the world am I going to see what I'm, you know, preaching to the congregation there? This is uh, Pastor Paul Tassari. He's a graduate of the Master Seminary. He asked me to preach there. And the Lord gave me just enough light from behind where I just took a step to the left and I was addressing this side. This whole other side was just completely in the dark. (laughs) But I pray that the lights won't go out here this morning. Um, As Pastor Leek is away um, right now, we, I had the opportunity to go through part two of a message that I preached several months back. We looked together at John chapter 1, um, verses 6 through 9. It was a total, well, the, the total of all the verses was uh, uh, 13 verses. Um, we went through chapter 1, 1 through Five during Christmas of last year, and then somewhere around, somewhere sometime after that, went through six through eight, and so now I am finishing to Doug Baldridge's happiness. Um, well, Lord willing, I'll be able to finish the last of these um, verses. And the title of this particular message, you look in the bullet and it says God with us. I'm actually changing that because I think a better title is Jesus Christ, the light of all people. Jesus Christ, the light of all people. And the overarching theme of that message was titled that Christ may have the preeminence. That was the last sermon. And we were working through an outline based on verses 9 through 13, and the outline was the testament of light as seen through um, verses such as 6 through 9. And then the second part of the outline was the rejection of light as seen in verses 10 through 11, and the last part of the outline was the distributor of light in verses 12 through 13. And in verses 6 through 8, we glanced at Christ's forerunner, John the Baptist. And he came to testify about the light. And we understood that the apostle was very deliberate in pointing out the depreciation of John the Baptist's ministry and the increase of Christ's ministry. Because Jesus must have the preeminence. Because he's a light to all the people. All I'm doing up here is dispensing light. 
not germane to me, but the light of what you are listening to in God's word. I'm just a portable lamp. That's all I am. But Jesus is the light. I'm just giving to you what he is, what he gave to us in his word. Well, we never did actually complete the outline, but instead we actually stopped at verse 8 of the first section of our outline of Christ being the testament of light. So for this morning, I am determined to finish the rest of the outline. And so before we dig into it, it seems necessary for me to sort of set the framework of what we're going to be um, looking at um, uh, this morning, and I hope and pray that it would be a benefit to you. And so I want to start off by saying that our world that we live in is saturated by talking points. There's so many, in fact, that it can be difficult to discern truth from error, the genuine from the counterfeit. And some have wrung their hands about this and have come to the conclusion that no one can really know the truth about this life. But the saints of old, as you read in the Old and New Testament, they never rested on the spirit of the age. But they rested on the truth of their God as revealed in their own inspired writings. And so when you study the prophets, a particular theme emerges that there would be a man who would come, the Messiah, the God-man who would be a light to his people. But in order to understand them, we have to have a, we need to place them in their scope of their own context of biblical history. For instance, we can start at Genesis 1 and 2, where we read about the story of creation, creation ex nihilo, God created the heavens and the earth. And in Genesis 3 through 11, we read about the corruption of the seed of mankind as a result of sin, culminating in God's catastrophic flood of Noah's day, a a deluge that destroyed the planet. And when you look through Genesis chapter 12 through 17, God makes a unilateral covenant with a person named Abraham, promising a great nation out of him to give land to the nation, as well as to make a multitude of descendants covenant blessings, and we would be recipients of those covenant blessings. As Gentiles. And when you look through the book of Genesis, God delivered his people, Israel, out of Egypt and entered into covenant relationship with them, called the Mosaic Covenant. And the thrust of God's covenant with Israel could be summed up in this way I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. And the Mosaic Covenant is laid out before us in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28. Should Israel obey the Lord in all his ways, they would be blessed. However, should Israel fail to walk in the ways of the Lord, God would come to judge that nation and remove them from the promised land in judgment. And then you 
look through the books of Joshua through all the way through 2 Kings, answers the question of whether Israel will be faithful in keeping to the covenant with their covenant-keeping God, as outlined in the book of Deuteronomy. And unfortunately, we learn through the text in these writings that the answer is an astounding no. In fact, we learn as that Israel became more and more predisposed to the surrounding Gentile nations, they would end up turning away over and over and over again from the Lord to warmly embrace the idolatry and immorality of the surrounding nations, abandoning the God of Israel, their God. And when Israel would incessantly turn their backs on their God, he would chasten them, bringing them back to himself. Over and over again, he would chasten them, bringing them back again and again. And the time of Israel's deterioration is absolutely clearly seen in the book of Judges through Kings, and it lasted about 400 years of rebellion, a cycle over and over, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, not did what was right in the Scripture. And just prior to the gavel of God's judgment coming down upon Israel and Judah, he sent his prosecuting attorneys, the prophets, who were to act as lights among a disobedient nation. And the prophets would in turn deliver this final plea to his people, repent and turn back to the Lord. Your God, because if you do not turn back, if you do not repent, the curses of Deuteronomy 28 will fall upon you and foreign nations will come and remove you from your land in judgment. Well, again, we read in the text of Scripture that the nation failed to repent. As a result, God would send the wicked Assyrians to come in and decimate Israel in 722 BC that would sweep them away and destroy the northern kingdom. Then in the years 586 BC, you had the southern kingdom of Judah would be overtaken and destroyed by the Babylonians as they came to destroy Israel, yet not without hope, not without hope, of a promised national salvation of Israel in the latter days to come. And so if we were to summarize that, summarize the message of the prophets, it was this. You've broken the covenant, repent or face judgment, but there's still hope for you. There's still hope for you. There's still hope for you, Israel. There's still hope in your coming king. That is the theme. So now what I want you to do is fast forward in your mind to A.D. 25, 26, around that time. Tiberius Caesar has been in power for 15 years. It's the great and mighty Roman Empire. And it's around also this time that you have the sudden arrival of a man named John the Baptist. 
And he was the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets who had ever lived up to that time because his purpose was to announce the advent of the Christ. And John the Baptist begins to preach repentance, the kingdom of God, and the coming of the great king who would shake the nations. And John preached about three years before Christ's presentation of himself before him and Israel at the Jordan River. Repent! Repent! For three years before he knew that the Christ would stand before him. And in Israel, in the ambiance of that day, the days of Christ and John the Baptist, there was a blinding spiritual darkness due to a works-based system of redemption. It had soaked itself into the nation of Israel. And it took John the Baptist to stir up Israel from their spiritual blindness by bearing witness to the light. Verse 7 of John chapter 1. Now fast forward to around 80-90 to the Apostle John the disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the author of this letter. And he is writing about John the Baptist, who is bearing witness to the light that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the testament of light to an unbelieving world. And John echoed the teaching of his Lord in verse 9 of chapter 1, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Enlightens every man. Let me go ahead and read it for you just so we can get the backdrop. There came a man, verse 6, sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. So what I want you to do is hang your thoughts for a moment and take notice of the two words that John makes reference to. True and light. Alethanos in the Greek, it means true. And it refers to that which is real. It refers to that which is genuine. And then you have the other word regarding um, light. It's the Greek word fotizo. And it refers to lighting up something. To expose. And so what's the application? You could say the application is Christ is the real deal. He's not a fake. He is the real light who has come to expose 
He's come to bring to light. He's, he's come to enlighten men, as opposed to disingenuous men who are unreal, who are fake, who do not expose or bring to light that which is true, that which is genuine. But they mask the truth in darkness. And many will run after these disingenuous lights and they find themselves in eternal hellfire because they did not want to come to the true one who gives them the light, enlightenment that only Christ can give. It's a real, genuine light. Colossians 1, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 15 says this. It says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Before, verse 14 says, No wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of what? It's a disingenuous light. It's disingenuous. But Christ is the real deal. Jesus' entrance into human history was the most genuine and ultimate self-disclosure of God to man this world has ever seen. Sure, I mean, you look, prior to the incarnation, you had smaller lamps, you had the prophets, you who made careful searches, they made careful inquiries about a far greater exhibit of such, this, of such a one as this testament of light that would come upon the earth that they had ever known. The message of the prophets carried was absolutely genuine. It was real. It was light. But it was only partial. It didn't show the total portrait. It wasn't the full disclosure. They were merely shadows, as Hebrews puts it. But the prophets saw in their own writings, this testament of light, this one, and they believed in him, and they spoke of him, and they wrote about him. And as the apostle Peter put it, they sought to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. Who is this person? And when will he come? And John answers this question. He answers it throughout this epistle. He says, it is Christ who is the real deal. Because Christ must have the preeminence. He is the testament of light. I love what Rabbi Zechariah said. Listen to what he said here. Jesus did not begin his mission by leaving more comfortable surroundings in order to gain enlightenment so that he would find the answer to life's mysteries. That was the origin of Buddhism. He did not come to give a certain group of people ethnic worth so that they too could have an identity as others around them did. Islam had its beginning for such reasons. He did not give any people a reason to boast a particular privilege because of the age of their culture or their perceived strength of their society's cohesion. 
Virtually all pantheistic cultures pride themselves on how they have been in existence. He did not come to affirm a people who boasted in the strength of their military power as the citizens of Rome did in claiming their city to be the eternal city. Christ did not come to compliment the Greeks for their intellectual prowess. In fact, he did not even come to exalt a culture because it was the recipient of God's moral law, a boast the Hebrews delighted in. His strong and unequivocal claim was that heaven was his dwelling and earth was his footstool. And there was never a time when he was not. There never will be a time when he will not be. He was positing of truth from an eternal perspective that uniquely positioned him, end quote. Christ is the testament of light in all matters of faith and practice. But despite being the case, despite that being the case, many a people will reject Christ without a cause. And we get to the second part of our outline, the rejection of of the light, the rejection of the light. Verse 10, he was in the world. Now, I know you just want me to keep reading it, but I'm just going to pause right there. (laughs) He was in the world. When John penned that Christ was in the world, his created world, he's referring primarily to his earthly ministry during the incarnation. And Christ lived on this earth for about 33 years under the sphere of an evil world system set against him by virtue of its fallenness. The holy entered the unholy. And John pointed out in verse 10 the fact that although The world was made through him, and the world didn't know him. Didn't know him. Absolutely amazing. The unregenerate world didn't even see that their creator was among them. So John is saying. Their blindness was so far-reaching. It was so deeply rooted in the extent of their being that when John writes that the world did not know Christ, he uses a Greek word that means it means to it means not know something. Egonosko in the Greek, to not know something. Some translations have it didn't even recognize him. Didn't recognize him. The implication is simply this. And you could also say that this is an application, that there wasn't even an awareness of who Jesus was. Wasn't even an awareness of who Jesus was. I mean, it wasn't even a blip on their radar. It's so incredibly tragic. And the unbelieving world that we live in today still doesn't even know that their creator walked the earth. It's not even a blip in their radar. And those who are, I would say, you could say religious, who say they worship Christ, but their deeds are so far from him. It's as though he doesn't even exist. It's not even a blip in their radar. It's not even a blip in their radar. Is it a blip in your radar? Jesus said, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things that I say? 
Is it a blip in your radar? The unbelieving world ignores Christ. Instead, they will turn around and what they will do is to naturally suppress the truth of God and the worship of God and serve the creature rather than the what? Rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. But perhaps there are some here who don't recognize who Christ is. Again, it's not a blip on your radar. My friend, there is a promise for you in this word. There is a promise for you in this word this morning. You can know him. You can know him. He can reach into your heart and pour light in. And you will see him. You will see him. Now, you think that his own kin would have recognized him, right? I mean, you would think that they would have recognized him as the Messiah. But instead, what ends up happening? What ends up happening in the early ministry years of Christ? He gets up. He goes to a synagogue and he preaches his very first sermon and his own people, as a response to his sermon, they end up trying to throw him off a cliff. Talk about a homiletical preaching lecture where you can actually wind up dead. <laughs> never, never happened to me. I'm still here. I remember my preaching labs where I thought I was going to die, but I wasn't thrown off a cliff. And his own people tried to throw him off a cliff. One sermon. One sermon. You would have thought that they recognized Christ. Instead, they said such things as, is this not not the carpenter's son? We know who his family is. Where does he get this from? But the Israel who was listening to him intently were saying, no man has ever spoken like this. But they brushed it off in their hatred for Christ. But in verse 11, John writes that Christ came to his own. That is, his own people, the nation he belonged to, and those who were of his own did not receive him. Jesus came to the place he had created and had a right to possess. Christ lived among his own kin, his own Jewish People. He grew up in a Jewish community among his brethren, and they would have known who he was. They would have known who his family was. Christ went to his own people and opened the lid of Israel's blackened heart. And as the light entered in, all the snakes came running out. Thus they pushed him away, and they rejected their own covenant creator. They pushed him away. And anyone who reacts, anyone, anyone who reacts in hostility and rejects their creator demonstrates that they love the darkness rather than the light of Christ. They reject Christ. They're just, they're so uncomfortable being in the light. And this is the crux of the issue. This is the crux of the issue, that Christ is at the crossroads of eternity. He is standing there. There is a crossroad. You can't go to the left. You can't go to the right. He is standing there. This 
is the judgment Jesus said that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. They hate it and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. You know, most of the sins that we commit are behind the scenes. Behind the scenes. And then in God's providence, he exposes you for who you really are. John MacArthur says this. I love how he says this. He says, like their ancestors, the Israelites of Jesus' day stiffened their necks and rejected him despite the clear testimony of the Old Testament scriptures. Instead of repenting of their sin and accepting him as their Messiah, they screamed, crucify him. His blood shall be on us and on our children. Israel's rejection and collaboration in the murder of the Messiah was a common theme in the apostolic preaching. Christian, Christ reveals the truth of who he is and exposes the truth of who you are. Christ reveals the truth of who he is and exposes the truth of who you are, of who I am. And the unregenerate mind is so desperately needs Christ because they will never see their need for him until they see how lost they really are. Take up the sword, Hope Bible Church, Christian, Friend, take up the sword and hear it thunder. We take up the sword and hear it thunder because we know that the word is a blazing fire, the all-sufficient hammer that breaks the heart in pieces. We so need that. We so need that. It will strike down as lightning upon the heart and the effects are seen in a transformed life walking in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, in all aspects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthening with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the, in the inheritance in the saints of light. In the inheritance of the saints of light. Christ is in you, and all I see is light. But maybe not some of you. Oh, how great is the heart of darkness, Christian. Not regenerated by the light of Christ. And the only remedy, the only remedy is for the Holy Spirit to open the lid of the damned soul and pour light into that heart. Into that heart. And this is what the Christian desperately needs as well. We need it too. Not in salvation for we've already been granted to it. 
but a growing sanctification germinating when it's watered by the daily intake of the word of God. We grow in light and we get brighter and brighter and brighter. In the unbelieving world, backs away, backs away, backs away, but some want to see it. They need the gospel. They need to see it. Well, we went through the testament of light in verses 6 through 9 and the rejection of the light in verses 10 through 11, which is what we're looking at. And Just as John referred to those who would reject Christ in verses 10 through 11, he would also take the time to highlight the many who would also receive Christ in the distributor of light in verses 12 through 13. The distributor of the light. The distributor of the light. Verse 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, but of God. And what's most fascinating about these verses is what John is conveying to his readers, and that is this. The salvation they received, the salvation you received by Christ, it's not something that they contributed to. It's not something that you contributed to. John was a very good listener of our Lord. A very good listener. He paid attention. And this theology lesson comes right out of John chapter 3 in his passage where Jesus teaches the most well-known teacher of Israel at the time, which was Nicodemus. Jesus, the creator, is now teaching the teacher of Israel. And our Lord explained to Nicodemus that his salvation is not something he contributed to because being born from above by the Spirit is a supernatural work of God. And Nicodemus was like, huh? And Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know this? That's how blind Israel was. You're the teacher. You're the article. You're the teacher of Israel. And you don't know what your Old Testament says? The Old Testament that I gave you to know? You don't know this? Our salvation is not something we paid into. It's not something we merited nor worked for. Salvation is granted to us by the Son. From before the salvation of the world, the Lord set his love upon you to save you. You. This is not something that you've contributed to. This was not your decision. The Lord changed the disposition of your heart and you received. You saw yourself for who you really are. I remember coming to salvation and I remember the lid of my own sinfulness was exposed. And I begged Christ for mercy. I begged him for mercy. To save me. This 
should not be without dispute that the Lord opens up the hearts and we receive. This should not be in dispute. And if there are some here perhaps who still think there is a sense in which we've contributed in some way to our salvation, I want you to be reminded of what Jonathan Edwards said, that there is only one thing that you've contributed to your salvation, and that is the sin that made it necessary. That is the only thing you've contributed to. Your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Here's another quote from John MacArthur. He says this, We need to be born again. That is, having been born physically, we need now to be born spiritually. That birth comes from above. In a sense, our first birth, our first birth of course, was a direct creation of God as well, even in the physical sense. And so it is with our second birth that comes down from above. There is, however, no human aid to that birth, as there is in physical birth. It is a divine work of God, and that is why it is referred to as being born of the Spirit. Born of the Spirit. It is a work of the Holy Spirit to give us life. That's what born again means. And the reason the Lord uses this analogy is because it expresses to us the fact that we have no participation in this birth. You had nothing to do with your first birth, your physical birth, and you will have nothing to do with your spiritual birth. It is a divine work of God. Theologians call it monergistic rather than synergistic. You don't participate in it. I didn't participate in it. No person who was born again makes a contribution to that. There isn't a way to make that happen. This is a divine work of God. To look at it, he's going on, he says this. To look at it, this was so good that I just wanted to share this with you. To look at it in perhaps an unforgettable illustration. Remember what I said about Lazarus. This is a sermon in past that he's talking about. Lazarus is dead. He's in the grave. He's been dead for four days. His body is in a state of decay. The Lord comes to his tomb, and he raises him from the dead. He does, it, he does it by a call. He says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes to life, comes out of the grave, a new creation. The grave clothes are taken off of him. He is fully alive. We are, in a, we are a race of Lazaruses, spiritually dead. God gives us life, and he does it through a call, through a call. Jesus gave life to Lazarus, and he declared that life through calling him out of the grave. And so it is with those who are given life by the Holy Spirit. It is by a divine call. God speaks, and life comes to us. End quote. You know, I've heard people say, I found Jesus, or I've accepted Jesus into my heart. I don't want to question the genuineness of their heart. I don't know their heart. I just wonder the things that they say. It's just very natural for me to do that. I'm just a curious kid. I just hear these things. I'm just like, hmm. I hear things like, I made Jesus Lord of my life. But the Apostle John writes that that is simply not true. Like, it's like John is saying, did you read my inspired work? Did you hear what I said? You, did you, are you, you serious? Really? He didn't have that accent. I have no idea what kind of accent John had. <laughs> John is simply saying this. He's saying Jesus wasn't lost. You were, and he found you. 
You've contributed nothing except the sin that made it necessary for you to be redeemed from the marketplace of sin. You cannot make Jesus Lord of your life. He is Lord. He redeemed you from the marketplace of sin. You couldn't pull yourself out. He redeemed you from the domain of darkness and into the place and kingdom of his son. He raised you to spiritual life. He saved you by his grace, not your grace. What grace do you have? You don't have it unless the Lord has been given it to you by his grace. You couldn't even breathe apart from his grace. You couldn't even drink a glass of orange juice apart from the ability to, for him to give you the ability to do what you do and work. You've contributed nothing. You've contributed nothing. My Lord, I did not choose you. For that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. You took the sin that stained me. You cleansed me, made me new. Of old you have ordained me that I should live in you. Unless your grace had called me and taught my opening mind, the world would have enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. My heart knows none above you. For your rich grace I thirst. I know that if I loved you, you have loved me first. Jesus Christ, the light of all people. Father in heaven, help us to walk in the light of your truth. We don't want to be fake. We want to be real. And in our weakness, Lord, we ask you to forgive us. Forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help us to love you more. Help us to be a God-obsessed people. Help us to traverse the world in light and let the world see it. And may they be transformed. And I pray if there is a soul here today who was convicted and they are exposed by your light, oh my God, save them. May they cry out to you, mercy, save me, redeem me from the pit. I pray that you would do so because you are a God who saves. You are a God who gives light. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. Lord, I pray for Pastor Leek, who's away right now. I pray that you would bring him back. Bring him back and his family back. And when he comes, may we hear the light of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, so we can be changed. In Jesus' name, you are Lord. You are God. Amen.